Welcome back, listeners, to another exciting entry in the Matt Goes to the Movies extended podcasting universe for a little spinoff show we call Rob's Reviews. For those of you who are new listeners to the MGTTM Podcasting Network, the EPU is a chance for me to pull some great movies out of the archive that have really meant a lot to me over the course of my life and talk about them with you. 1995's GoldenEye marked a new chapter in the James Bond film franchise with a new Bond, new M, and new Money Penny after a six-year hiatus from theaters. Pulling in over $356 million at the box office, GoldenEye sits at 80% on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics and 83% with the audience. The film would be the first of four outings as the title character for Pierce Brosnan, who would play Her Majesty's most famous spy again in Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, and Die Another Day before the series was rebooted with Daniel Craig in 2006. Most fans regard this as the best movie by far of those four, myself included. Bond has become such a pop culture icon that even the parodies of him, like the Austin Powers series and the TV show Archer, have become big hits of their own. Nearly two years after the release of GoldenEye came an unheralded tie-in game for the Nintendo 64, launching just before the release of Tomorrow Never Dies. Literally nobody in the gaming industry expected much of this. Licensed games had a poor reputation with most gamers as cheap tie-ins that never played particularly well with a few exceptions here and there. But GoldenEye was different. It went on to redefine first-person shooters and change the perception of how these games could play on consoles compared to PCs. The game finished as the third best-selling Nintendo 64 game of all time behind Mario Kart 64 and Super Mario 64, largely due to the craze around the groundbreaking for its time split-screen multiplayer. What makes this even more interesting is that this mode was added on last minute without Nintendo even being aware that it was included at first. The re-release of GoldenEye for next-gen systems had been rumored for a long time, but with a number of companies involved in the licensing to deal with, it seemed just as unlikely to happen as the release of the Snyder Cut of Justice League did to me back in 2018. But just like the Snyder Cut, where there is enough fan demand, eventually the money works itself out and GoldenEye became available on the Nintendo Switch N64 expansion and through Xbox Game Pass. To celebrate the re-release of a game I had ranked as my fifth favorite game of all time when we did our four-part video game ranking series last year, I thought it would be great to go back and re-watch the film that it was based on. To talk about it with me, I'm happy to welcome back to the show the Sean Bean to my Pierce Brosnan, the Cyril Figgis to my Sterling Archer, and my younger brother Eric. Eric, welcome back to the show. I really resent uh, the, the Cyril Figgis comparison but um super pumped to be talking about this yeah this is one that we've definitely seen over and over and over again and um you know again with the with the kind of buzz that golden eye has i was i thought you know this is the perfect time uh to go check this out particularly because matt and i on the big show are in the process of reviewing uh the last of us weekly which is um, an adaption, of course, of one of the all-time best games. It, it was on. It was number one on my list. So, um, you know, I thought it'd be fun to uh, check out a movie that is kind of famous because of a game. While we're talking about a TV show that is uh, famous because of a game, so um, so Eric Goldeneye, it, it meant a lot as a, as a film, and certainly meant a lot as as a game. Uh, where, if you just kind of had to take a guess, where would you say Goldeneye ranks on your top favorite video games of all time? Oh, it's top five. I mean, this this was 
Christmas morning in grandma's basement. We just got the N64 and it was between GoldenEye and NFL Blitz. And I think we started with GoldenEye and like literally never stopped. <laughs> like, yeah, it was it was back and forth between those two. And, and those were great games to pass the controller to your friends with. Um, and I think GoldenEye was so well remembered. It, it was totally like groundbreaking for console gamers. Okay. Like, you know, you're going to have your old school PC guys that, you know, talk about the capabilities of their machines. Okay. I get it, whatever. But that wasn't accessible to your average family, right? Like when we were growing up, you know, people had computers, but they weren't, they weren't gaming rigs and they weren't running any kind of frame rate, you know, that was worth a damn. And so with the consoles, they were, they were cheap. They were approachable despite Nintendo's obsession with making really weird controllers. It was the benchmark for competitive multiplayer. Yeah. It really paved the way for things like halo that um, would kind of redefine console shooters once again. And, and as Matt and I have said over and over again, we believe strongly that if it wasn't for halo, we might not be talking about an Xbox system still in existence. I mean, that was really the killer app that, that got people to, to buy into this brand new console makers, uh, new item. So, um, couple minutes, a couple things we want to still do for the actual game itself. What was your favorite setup to play on in multiplayer? What was your favorite, uh, uh, way to set it up as far as the, uh, the weapons and the, um, map, what was your favorite? So I have a few power weapons were probably one of my favorite choices as far as the, the weapon stuff goes. I really liked them, especially on complex because it was a tight map. There was a lot of sharp corners and, and stuff where it, you know, the auto shotgun really came into play or the RCP 90, you could just let loose, you know, you just hold the trigger until the next week, you know, and it might run out. So like that was, that was a fun, uh, combo there um i really liked license to kill as for like a game mode because that, that was when you know one bullet kills you no matter what gun it comes from i like to do that with like pistols you know things that made it a little bit more tough i really liked uh rockets on like a, a, a tight map kind of like complex but <laughs> more like yeah because that was just wild basement you know or facility with rockets was fun because yeah. you you couldn't just skip a rocket and and be happy with that like you would kill yourself like a lot so yeah you had to be really like, really um, good it's not like in a lot of modern first person shooters where somebody shoots a rocket at you so you jump and it explodes harmlessly at your feet like there was no jump oh yeah no there was well yeah and there was no escaping that rocket either like that yeah. was you know this was a game where uh, there was a, a crappy very generic computer chair that if you shot it with enough bullets it would explode in flames okay so yeah they, because they physics works that way. Times. Yeah. So I really like that. I liked remote mines anywhere uh, yeah. because I, I I learned, I don't even remember because this was pre, pre-internet. pre I, I at some point learned, maybe it was Nintendo Power, that if you throw the remote mine instead of having, because you had to switch to the watch to detonate it, but you could just quick press A and B together without switching to the, to the watch and it would blow it up. So you could like actually throw a mine and then blow it up at like exactly where you wanted it to, to blow up in midair. So I would throw those at people's faces and, you know, 
win all the time. That was fun. Yeah, um, and then obviously, combo. I know what yours is, so I'm not going to steal it. Um, but but go ahead. Yeah. So for me, either the library or stack, because it's pretty much the same thing with proximity mines, because those were just. It, it, just cruising around the map and all of a sudden racking up kills, not even standing anywhere near them. Uh, just, it, it got ridiculous at times with that. So, um, so yeah, it's certainly a game that's meant a lot to us. Um, if this is the first time I've seen this movie in, it's been a long time. It's probably been minimum 15 years um, since I've seen Ooh. this movie. Um, I was, I was trying to think about when I saw it last because I don't know specifically the time frame, but I absolutely do remember the last time I watched it before the other day, I thought, wow, does this not hold up at all? Like, I was actually sort of disinterested. But watching it the other night, I was ensorcelled. I was locked in and couldn't believe for any reason why I would think such a thing. And so I was scolding myself for blaspheming. And and it was, it was really like a, a really strange internal debate that I had. And, and I do, it was like about five years ago or so. It definitely wasn't 15 years ago because that's a crazy long yeah. time. But um, it, uh, much better on this watch for me than it was uh, the one prior to it. You know, I've talked about this a lot with Matt on the big show, but it's like when I give a rating, that's that's not, I don't really necessarily feel like when I rank a show or a movie that it's, that that's it's all time permanent ranking for me. It's it's kind of a living ranking where that's oh, yeah. just how I feel about that movie on that particular day. Yeah. And, and that could change based on my mood. That could change based on the last thing I watched. You know, if I saw a very similar style movie that was done way better, um, you know, it might make that previous one look a little worse. Conversely, if I've just got like. Matt's really good at making me watch terrible movies. He just got done making me watch Wild Wild West. We we did a Will Smith marathon hey, that wrapped up easy. in January. Yeah. That, no, that, that movie movie's is... good. No, no. You have Selma Hayek in that movie. Nothing um, else needs to be said. Yeah, except that she has no point in being in, in that movie at all whatsoever because <laughs> she doesn't actually do anything. But you can listen to the review on that if you want to hear more about our thoughts on it. But, you know, if I've just got done watching Wild Wild West and then I watch a movie that I was kind of meh on before, all of a sudden that might look a little bit better to me. So um, we're going to go ahead and just get into it. So we're going to stay spoiler free if for some reason you've not seen this movie before uh, and kind of wanted to hear what it was all about. We're going to stay you've spoiler only had free. 25 <laughs> years you know, or yeah. so it came out and you know, it's, it's been out, but anyways, uh, yeah. So, uh, mildly spoiler free, I suppose. Um, Eric, if you had to entice somebody to check this out, that it, you know, maybe they just picked up with the Daniel Craig series. Maybe they skipped Pierce Brosnan altogether. Maybe they're, uh, you know, after, uh, Sean Connery left the role, they, they wrote the character off. What would you say to that person to encourage them to, uh, check out this entry? So, this is like universally accepted as a massive success in terms of Bond era. They almost decided to stop making James Bond movies prior to this. Um, and it is clearly separate from the previous eras. Uh, don't expect it to be a, a flashy, polished Daniel Craig like super Hollywood, you know, blockbuster. It's different than that, but it, it's it's a compelling spy movie with your typical cheesy quips uh, and Bond lines, and some of them are actually, you know, amusing. Um, 
and it's it's just it's a fun movie there's cool scenes that make you say wow i mean the movie really starts off with one and then it just continues rolling into it and before the the main title uh plays which is you know standard for bond movies you've already sort of been through like kind of a lot and it's uh there's some pacing issues we can get into later but it's, you have to see this at least once because th this is really, and I know I said benchmark before, but it really is a benchmark. Like this is how every subsequent Bond content was compared to this film, just like every subsequent first-person shooter was compared to the game on the N64. Not to take anything away from Doom and Quake. I mean, I know those are like the actual godfathers of, of FPS, but... Um, and Wolfenstein, of course, the original, yeah, the OG... So like that, you know, there's, there's a graduation, uh, you know, this, this would be, this would be the, like the first varsity, uh, version of bond in, in terms of the movies. This was, this was like the first time the Hollywood had a real good chance to, to amp it up. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's so much of this film that I would say is really like classic, you know, what you think of as James Bond, you know, there's, it's it, particularly with the opening, which we'll kind of get into, I guess, in a little bit. But this is the spy fantasy is so strong throughout this movie. Bond gets to kick ass, save the world, drive fast, blow stuff up, and he gets the pretty girl when he's all done. And if that's your thing, then this movie is for you. Uh, if that sounds a little too, I don't know, not not your cup of tea, then then this probably isn't for you because that's that's really what this is. This is not intended to be based in reality. The, this is a total 100% fantasy world. Um, you know, you could almost call bond a Mary Sue at times. Um, you know, it really does kind of feel that way. It's, it's, and when you compare that to the Daniel Craig interpretation of the character, not necessarily that these were Daniel's decisions, but just the way they decided to start making bond films when they rebooted the character, you know, that's one of the things I sort of like about his, uh, series is bond gets his ass kicked like bond doesn't do great all the time yes there's still the crazy action scenes that that can't really happen and, and kind of play fast and loose with the physics a bit but um the, the the tension and the danger always seems a little bit more real yes we expect our hero to make it through to the end um but we actually believe he is in a little bit of danger there and that's not so much at play here but it's it, this is one of those ones that it's just it's just supposed to be fun. And the movie itself is fun. I, in, I have a blast every time I watch it. And uh, I, was, I was really excited to go check it out again uh, very recently. So uh, we're going to move into our next segment we call Least and Likes. So Eric, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, we're now in full spoiler mode here. Uh, go ahead and talk to us about your favorite scene and then anything else that... Um, just really particularly works for you that makes this an all-time classic for you ah, all right so the tank scene the tank chase scene is <laughs> it's probably the pinnacle of the like the, the the holy shit action scenes okay like it's it is over the top he he's drifting a tank <laughs> through <laughs> the, the I, who knew a tank had an e-brake yeah, like he really is, and and like when he's about to crash through an entire building, he just like ducks underneath the, like the the cover of the tank and just keeps on going, and 
but the, like just seeing that, I mean, they're really doing it. Um, you know, they're really driving that tank. They had to put uh, these these special rubber tracks on it so it didn't tear the streets up. Um, but and there's some more behind the scenes stuff that we can get to. But uh, what in general, what really works for me, and this is because I'm a total like George Lucas, Star Wars Homer, but they use a ton of practical effects and models. Most of the stuff that you see exploding is a model in in this movie. If you know what to look for, like if you've seen enough of it, you can tell by looking. So like this is there's a lot of uh, it just tickles the Star Wars and Indiana Jones uh, bits that I like uh, a lot. So I, I do like that. They did. This was the first Bond movie that they did use like CGI stuff, but they they refrained from overdoing it. I think most of it was green screen that was used, and you can see a lot of that, and it does kind of suck. Um, but it's it's you know it's an earlier use of the technology. The pacing is not good. I said that earlier. There is a ton. Like it's probably so. What is this? One hundred and thirty minutes. So there's probably like twenty five of those minutes that's just slow and useless. Like it's not bringing the story around. It's not adding anything to the suspense. There's no additional conflict. Um, It's just not useful. Uh, And I'm sure you're going to have a couple things uh, specifically to poke at there, but the, the stunts I think are probably some of the more trophy worthy items. Um, The, just from the very beginning, I mean, he skydives off a humongous dam. Um, and I shouldn't say skydive, he bungee jumped. But then he later skydives when he's chasing down a an unmanned plane. And it's unmanned because he unmanned it. <laughs> he threw the guy out. <laughs> he manually unmanned the plane. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he takes a, another dude's motorcycle that he jacked up and tears down this runway full speed and i really do like you know you talked about how like daniel craig's bond is in trouble like a lot and we kind of believe that it's real trouble in this movie like the face that that pierce brosnan is making as he's you know cruising down that runway chasing after this plane with his motorcycle there's a weird like nervous confidence like he knows that this is the only choice he has but like he also knows it's not like gonna probably be awesome you know, to, to end it, but he still does it anyways. There's no hesitation. And like, you can just kind of see, they really conveyed it really well with the, uh, you know, the cinematography and, and the way that they had him directed there, but he launches off the, the edge of the runway. The airplane is, is about to smash into a, a giant Canyon and he's skydives into it and, and is able to pull up in time over the top, a little bit hokey, but just, they show the stunt. I mean, they, they really are like, you know, doing stuff that is, is real and awesome. That was a super cool stunt. You don't really see stuff like that very often. You've seen some little bit uh, like duplicates of, of people doing one thing that comes to mind is the, the A-Team remake with Bradley Cooper and Rampage and uh, Liam Neeson. They, they actually had a tank falling through the sky. That was pretty rad. Um, but that's, that's what works the most uh, for me. Uh, that's not entirely game related. <laughs> yeah. So um, my favorite scene is also the tank scene. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, it's just, it's just so awesome. Uh, and it starts really like he sees the tank and you're going, okay, I think we know where this is going. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and then the tank just 
bashes right through that wall and it's on and everything from that point on is just awesome. Um, you know, it crashes through that whole truck of Perrier and, and it just blows all those bottles or cans or whatever it was all over the place. That's just awesome. Like that's one of those, like, you know, you gotta have just, a fruit cart getting, you know, exploded in, in any kind of chase scene. You've got to have something like that. And that's what the, you know, that adds to it. Yeah. Um, not only do they have that, but he also, cr- you know, he crashes through a, uh, a statue and he's got this Pegasus like riding around on top of his tank. And that's just awesome. Like it's ridiculous and awesome. And, um, and really when I think about like, if I had to make a list of all the things I want out of a James Bond movie, uh, ridiculous would be number one. Awesome would be bullet point number two of the, on my list of things that I want. And it, uh, that tank scene just does it in spades. Yeah, it really um, does. The tank scene brings it. You know, you mentioned the practical effects and uh, uh, longtime listeners and, and actually even recent listeners of Matt Goes to the Movies know how much I hate bad CG. And I just I, I just think the practical effects are when you can use them are, are superior. So I'm not going to I'm not going to stand on that soapbox for too much longer because there's already dozens of hours of me on the on the Internet talking about it. But you're absolutely right. It's just it always feels more real when you when you're looking at something that's real, even if it's a model, it just feels more real to me than a cartoon. And, well, yeah, because uh, it's and, actually really blowing up. You know, it's just to scale. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Um, that opening scene is just fantastic. I mean, it's classic Bond with all of the absurdity. And you've got cannon fodder bad guys who all have stormtrooper aim. Oh, but... cannot hit anything. Yeah. <laughs> no. Is it any wonder the Soviets lost the Cold War if that's if that's all the better they were at anything? Um, but again, Bond isn't supposed to be realistic. This is a fantasy. The cars, the women, the gadgets. He's in international espionage, the witty wordplay. I mean, for God's sakes, he wears suits everywhere instead of tactical gear. Like who shows up to like a midnight meeting in a suit as opposed to like, you know, your, it's your like steer, usually your like a tuxedo turtleneck. too. And yeah. He's, instead of the tactical mech. Yeah. It, it's uh, and the other part of it, too, is he's supposed to be this great spy and literally everybody knows his name. He tells like, them. everybody. Yeah, yeah. He introduces himself. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows his name. Like all of these people he's encountered before. They know his name. Like. That's like yeah. the worst spy craft ever. Or well, how about when he he has he, at the at the end he has he has mines with him, right? Like their their airplane gets shot down. He has mines with him, but not a better gun than the PPK. That's it's just like four dozen dudes with AKs running around, and he he has a a concealed carry handgun. Like that's a tiny little like pocket pistol, and I get it has its uses, and that's like the signature Bond gun. But well, he has mines and not a seven-round freaking handgun. Like, that's what he carries with him? Come on. Yeah, like, its use is to be put in somebody's purse and and brought in somewhere that way. Like, that's that's the best use for that particular weapon. Well, because, like, he's walking around and, like, he's he's trying to engage with these people with this gun. And it is it is ridiculous. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I guess they could explain that, like, you know, he the, the much better weapons he brought with him were lost in the plane crash. But as he's doing it, he's sitting there playing around with these remote mines setting timers on I'm like okay dude you got those in your bag then you should have it like have a shotgun or something holy crap yeah well it's funny it's like you know he's getting shot at by you know a whole battalion of guys with automatic weapons and you know he just ducks behind and they all miss and then he pops out with with a gun that is maybe two grades above a slingshot and just starts dropping bodies if um, if people listen to your MIB, then this would be like the noisy cricket. That's the equivalent. That's what he's carrying around. Is this itty bitty <laughs> little squirt um, gun? 
There's uh, that actually reminds me of a couple other things that don't work for me. I'm not trying to hijack you, but did you notice how like obscenely obvious the stunt doubles were? Yeah. This was particularly not, the opening. This was not very well like concealed. Even no. like the the car chase, um, well, but not much of a chase, more of a canyon race with uh, Zenya, the, the first to go around. Like when she hits the gravel and starts spinning, like they show a cut of the spin and like it's clearly a dude. And like I don't even think that they bothered to put a wig on him. So like they could have done better. And that that is to me that's laziness because that all that takes is a little bit of tradecraft to to conceal that better. Um, especially because after I did some reading. They, they did a lot of cuts in this to guarantee a PG-13 rating. And there's like another rating scale for, uh, I'm assuming it's European, um, that they wanted to like hit a certain number on that rating scale. So like they didn't show anybody getting shot in the head, you know, directly. And like even when he like did the little judo chop to the back of Xenia's neck in the, in the car, uh, they actually don't show him hitting her. They just show him like the action of him doing it and you just... You know, it's like the whole cutaway to the curtains when people are about to start making love by the fireplace thing. So they did a lot of that, but they couldn't like better conceal their stunt doubles. You know, like I just feel like <laughs> it would have been a little bit better job by them to do it. And then we talked about the slowdowns a little bit. And then the like, let's consider, let's let's think big picture here. He's taking some wholly untrained IT chick to Cuba to take down a global terrorist. Why is, she, why, why is she going? Yeah. Why are they not sending in uh, more like British special forces? Like, the, like I, and again, it's like a pretty wicked, you know, compound. Right. But like they could have just done what the CIA guy did and send in the Marines. You know, there was a few dozen of them and uh, they like to kick ass. They could have easily taken that place over. I just don't get tactically, diplomatically ethically you're taking somebody who resets people's passwords all day long on a commando mission so that yeah, that uh, didn't work for me at all i mean don't get me wrong i didn't mind seeing her on screen for you know much longer periods of time because uh, natalia Semyonova was my third redhead crush <laughs> of, of my life do, do you want to know what the first two are uh you're gonna say jessica rabbit Jessica Rabbit's on the list <laughs> in no particular order. Um, it, it was Natalia. It was Jessica Rabbit and Wilma Flintstone. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so oh yeah, we have God. that that's out there on, in, in the open now. So that's a, so, okay. Well, I'm glad you got that off your chest. <laughs> Getting too personal. Uh, so, so, so back to me, um, <laughs> There's a few other well, things that do work. I guess I'll let well you for this. It is your um, show. It's the um, you're absolutely right about some of the stunts. Um, really, really high quality stuff overall. Um, I've got a couple things that we'll talk on that a little bit later. I, I like the opening to this. So, you know, you've got those big, um, you know, set piece kind of openings where it's got the the big theme song in the background and there's all the moving parts and pieces, you know, that kind of is what we know as, as a bond opening. And what was really interesting about this, and I hadn't really thought about it um, in a while. And it was really just on this rewatch that it kind of occurred to me, but this is the first bond film to come out after the fall of the Soviet union and the collapse yes. of the Berlin wall. 
And it's a really interesting period of time. And, and just the, the whole opening focuses on the destruction of the hammer and the sickle and um, all of those. There's a lot of symbolism there. That, yeah, that... all of those symbols of, of the Soviet Union and, and communism in general. And what was interesting was, you know, you saw different points that not every uh, country had a fully fledged intelligence agency like the CIA did not exist before World War Two. In fact, it was called the OSS during World War Two. And then after the war, um, there was questions about does this service need to continue to exist? And, and certainly as the Cold War progressed, the CIA, you know, it came into existence flourished and and uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a lot of other people who said, listen, they've got a lot of power and authority and they've done some pretty bad stuff. Um, do we still need this organization around? So it's just kind of interesting, you know, to think about this, this period in history, um, you know, again, 1995, not that long after the fall, um, you know, that there's still reasons for these. And then of course, with the war on terrorism, we know that there's a reason we need these intelligence services, but it, it really was, it was just kind of an interesting thing to think about for a little bit. Um, so I did, I did sort of dig that. Um, every time in the opening scene, when Bond is trying to sneak out before, you know, when he's in, in that opening moment after, um, you know, when Trevelyan gets captured and that squeaky wheel on oh that my car God. gets me every Laughs time. I mean, so it was hard. Just, I completely it, forgot about it when I was watching it this last time and he starts going and it's just squeaking as he's going. <laughs> and you'd think about like, these are all very serious people. Like they're, they're pointing, you know, fully automatic weapons at you. Yep. <laughs> and the only thing that's saving you is the fact that if they shoot the thing that you're holding onto, the thing that you are putting your face beside will split <laughs> and kill everyone. Yeah. So like, you know, you just watched Omarov kill one of his own guys because he, you know, decided to skip a couple bullets at you. Uh, so you got to feel like pretty safe, but at the same time, you know, that your butthole is puckered all the way up and then that wheel is squeaking. And like, I, gets I like, me every o- time. Omarov sort of cracks like a little smile. And like, I think he has some level of amusement for just like the, you know, all things of the, the, the situation, all things considered. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it, probably leaning a little bit more towards admiration for, for his, uh, you know, inventiveness and ingenuity. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about J- about Dame Judy Dench for a bit, right? Oh, um, killed it. She's she's, she's the best badass. M that's ever been. Oh my god, yeah, total badass. I would, I mean, I forget which show we were talking about. It might have been when we were talking about Transformers um, over on the basement bench. We were talking about just great cinematic leaders, and somehow M just completely skipped my mind. And I'm going to just go ahead. I, I think she's underrated as all-time great leaders in the world of, of cinema. I'm well, going to put her up there She was the best Cap- acting in that in Goldeneye. Without oh, a doubt, yeah. she's the best. In, not just what, from her chops, but her actual performance. Uh, oh, absolutely. So I'm going to put her up there. She's, she's up there for me with Captain America, Optimus Prime, and Aragorn. That's my list, and it now includes M. Yeah. It's a pretty good because, list. Because of her. The, right. the Judy Dench M. Yeah. 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 I, that's a pretty well, good list. It was, it was controversial. Like there was, uh, some of that bled over like into the script and stuff, you know, where they had her moment where she had <laughs> talk about, you know, th- does she have the balls to send him to his death? And she, you know, basically tells him, I don't care if you live or die. Um, but you know, I'm not going to waste you, uh, if it's not necessary, but you know, she, she comes in and she throws down, 
Yeah. Um, they they actually based her character on a real person um, from MI6, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, I read that too. That's sweet. All the scenes with Q, they're great. Um, I love the wackiness. I love the gadgets. And I think partly it's these, re- it's, you know, it's the gadgets I think that are part of what really makes us love spy movies and, and James Bond in particular, because they're, they're the most ridiculous, but, but still kind of based a little bit of practicality. Um, absolutely in love with that. I, the other thing that I, I always try to do, I don't know if you do this too. Um, speaking of the gadgets, when you get to, you know, we're skipping a little bit towards the end of the movie and he's got the pen that's got the grenade built into it. Oh, yeah. I always find myself trying to count the number of times he clicks it so I can keep track of when it's armed and when it's disarmed. And I can like he clicks it so fast and he's doing it back and forth, back and forth. I always so, lose track and I can never keep track of it. Good thing I'll tell Bond you this. No, I, I, I figured it out because my entire life I tried to do the same thing and it just took some strange uh, change in perspective he never arms it until the very end like it's three clicks to do it it's not just three consecutive clicks it's got to be like three rapid fire clicks and he only ever like double clicks it and then there's like a, a you know pronounced pause between the next click so like what would be the third click in that particular sequence isn't actually counting as like click number three mm. to arm it so like that's when like Bond is watching and he's like, you know, tightening up his lip a little bit because he's getting ready to do something. It's not until he gets up in Natalia's face and screams and that's when he triple clicks it. And that's when Bond smacks his hand and, you know, grabs her and they, they all try to peace out. Um, because I, I did the same thing. I would sit there and try to be like, oh, my God, it's ready to go. But like he didn't th- do it three times. How is it disarmed? Like, how is that possible? You know, uh, it didn't really add up or make any sense. And so I sort of put it together this time watching it. So that maybe helps. Hmm. All right. So I think I took something away from that. Fantastic. Um, let's go ahead and move into least favorite scene. Um, I'm going to go first on this one. Uh, so least favorite scene and then anything else that maybe, you know, doesn't particularly work. So um, for me, it's the steam room fight. Um, it's really cringy it's really bad um it serves no purpose yeah i would say that and then kind of as like a you know uh, uh, a bullet point under that pretty much any scene with Zenya getting herself all worked up over violence um is is pretty awful um, she's and that's i agree with you completely she's a sociopath but they present her as like some weird like lustful violence fetishist and i I do i do get like bond villains are supposed to be like caricatures and and they are supposed to be kind of over the top oh yeah absolutely her name is on the top you know like and there's always some kind of weird sexual reference you know but i i yeah i don't know i don't think that like i would still consider her a bond villain like a proper villain without that scene like, yeah. I don't know if they felt like they needed to put that in there just to, to put her in the pantheon of Bond villains, or I, I don't know. I don't get it because it that scene sucked. Uh, that's I'm going to agree with you entirely right there. Yeah. So I, I dislike that one. I'm going to kind of give a dishonorable mention to uh, right before they're about to go on the mission itself. They've got this scene on the beach where, uh, you know, Natalia comes over and 
they have this argument on the beach and it's really dumb. Like she comes over specifically to pick a fight over something she already knew and understood. Like, what was the point of that? Like, you know, yeah, she's she like, you're going like, to kill him, right? She was going like, to yeah. be part of it. Yeah. She was like there to be a part of it and, but was still scolding him. Yeah. And it just, it, it just, it's a, it's an ineffective piece of dialogue and it really doesn't work. Um, so not my uh, uh, least favorite scene, but um, so I, I've mentioned before on uh, on the show that I do a lot of my uh, my watch assignments um, with uh, with my family and uh, and my son uh, has been doing a lot of that as well. Um, so I, I had to include this uh, in my um, you know things that I dislike about it. It's a direct quote from your nephew, uh, Eric. Um, why is there so much kissing in a spy movie? <laughs> it's a brilliant question. Uh, yeah. Cause it, I, you know, bond, he's, you know, something of a, a womanizer and yeah, he couldn't uh, figure out know. why there were multiple scenes, by the way, for those of you listening, um, uh, I, I did make my son leave the room and, uh, um, or at least close his eyes. And I turned the volume down for a, multiple scenes in this movie. So don't think I'm like a terrible well, parent for, for subjecting they, him to stuff. He's not old enough for yet. They do sort of have to throw some of that in because it is James Bond. That's part of the, the intrigue and the mystique. And, you know. It's part of the spy fantasy, but it doesn't need to be relationships. <laughs> like They don't. And that's, yeah. that's part of what, you know, part of my problem is that it's, it's far beyond uh, like schoolboy flirting. And, and it's like very much so like, they're like, Oh my God, we're going to be in love for 15 total minutes. Like I, I've never appreciated that in movies, anyways, because it's just not, it's just not very realistic. I don't know, not to me, but those are those are the the slowdowns, the you know the the twenty five total minutes of film in this one hundred and thirty minute movie. That's part of it. That beach scene, uh, the the steam room fight, because it, it's not even really much of a fight. Like it's just more of them grappling and not doing it very well. And like I'm sorry, but like there's just no possible way that Zenia is going to be able to overpower Bond like ever, but she, she squeezes she, her legs together like really hard, like really hard. And she enjoys it. So that probably adds some type of strange, like jaws of life squeezing power. But it yeah, like doesn't, if you, if your back was thrown out, that wouldn't even throw it back in. Like, let's be no, honest here. That's, that's no. a pretty lame finishing move. It's yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know how she managed to, to kill that Admiral guy, uh, by doing that. But whatever that was another weird one like she you know she could they, they didn't have to like show any of that they could have just kind of let you figure it out for yourself like she's going into a, a private cabin with a very ugly man uh and then she's going to come out you know a few minutes later and he's not like we know what happened you know we didn't have to see all of it yeah it's just creepy did you ever um, read any of the books the novelizations no so this was something I read because this was my first Bond movie like of my life. Um, and But it was the 17th one that was made. But it was the very first without any story elements from Ian Fleming's novels. So, like, it is, in every sense of the word, a classic spy fantasy. It is very much in line with all the other Bond tropes and cliches. And, and you know, for better and for worse but didn't borrow any story elements at all from Fleming's novels, uh, which I didn't even realize that was possible. 
Yeah, because uh, you got to run out of them sooner or later. So we're going to move on to our next segment. It's called Body Count. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what this says about us, Eric, but the, but the movies we tend to pick to cover here in the EPU tend to have a body count attached to them. Um, so I'm going to give you an over-under, and uh, Eric has not looked this up beforehand. I'm yeah. going to give you an over-under, and I need you to tell me if the body count for this movie is over or under 67. Oh, they killed a lot of people with the satellite in Severnaya. And well, there weren't that many there, though. I mean, there's maybe a dozen. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good, pretty good chunk. Uh, I think that I'll might be a bit much. I'll say under. Uh, the body count that I was able to locate said 72. Get so, out of here. Yeah, correct answer was over. So. Um, so that's our body count. We're going to move on to another segment. And, uh, part of what we said makes spy movies so much fun is the gear. It's the gadgets, the car, it's everything. So we're going to talk about some spy equipment you wish you had in real life. So Eric, if you could pick one item (laughs) from James Bond's assortment of gadgets straight from Q branch, what's the one item that you wish you had that, that also worked the way that it does. Cause by the way, there's, there's no way that you're going to fit like that belt grappling hook. That, that line is not going to fit a grown ass man. <laughs> like it's, no. it'll just snap. You can't, there's no aircraft cable well, strong enough for that. Definitely not me, but, uh, so like the child version of me would have totally picked the watch because how do you not like the watch has everything. It's got yep. lasers. It's got razor blades. It's got remote controls for stuff. You know, it can do whatever the, the content creators behind that particular moment want it to do. But the adult version of me really wants a vehicle with weapons on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like so much i can't even describe it so the and boy that the intro the the bmw z3 uh was really cool um they could have picked a better color i think uh it's not quite as as like masculine the the tealy turquoise color but it has machine guns and missiles and they never actually use them in the movie but uh oh we're gonna talk about that yeah, it was kind of let down. I think that was more product placement than anything. But um, it seems that every vehicle he has has a couple little turrets and missiles pods on it. Um, so I'm just going to say generally a weaponized vehicle that uh, is actually useful and functional. I mean, that's certainly one way to not have to worry about a deer jumping out in front of you. Or like anybody ever pulling out <laughs> in front of you. Or anybody, really. Oh, yeah, so... I'm talking about killing people like that, that pissed me off on the road. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, that's what I'm talking about. Sociopath. Um, (laughs) so obviously the car, but beyond that, I think having that watch, they can do pretty much all the things that his can do would be amazing. I mean, you you go to like, you get a package from Amazon and you're like, I can't get this thing open and you just pull out your watch, get the little laser, just cut that right open. That'd be awesome. Those little blister packs. You never have to worry about those again. Like, you know, that would be fantastic. Um, I'll also give you another one that I think would be pretty cool. And it's not something they use necessarily. In the Bond franchise, but they definitely overuse these in Mission Impossible. How would you like a super disguise maker? I'll set the scene like for the, you. The ready? Face maker? Yeah. So you're out in public and you run into like an old boss or an ex or something like that. Boom. You pop on a super realistic mask. You just walk right on by. I mean, when you when you really think about like real spy gear, like the things that people used at the height of the Cold War, 
most of this stuff is like super boring. Like it's, it's mostly just ways of hiding microphones and cameras and, and transmitting information back and forth. Like that's really what most spy gear is. Yeah. There's like one or two real umbrella guns that are out there. I, there by the, the way, if you're uh, for, yeah, for listeners who are ever uh, in the Washington DC area, uh, there is an international spy museum there. I definitely recommend checking it out if you get a chance. So, um, but uh, yeah, most most of the gear is pretty lame and pretty boring. It's mostly just tech stuff. It's it's not like you know lethal really. I think having the uh, the mask would be a pretty cool thing. So uh, we're gonna move into a new segment for this episode, and we're gonna call it "Rank the Suckitude." There mm-hmm. are three villains in this movie that die in really awful ways, and. Those those three are we have Alec Trevelyan. He uh, he gets dropped into the bowl of this antenna and then he um, he hits the flaming wreckage that ends up landing on him as everything's kind of coming down. Somehow he survives that and, and his skull is still intact. Um, Xenia gets uh, pulled by the helicopter and, and kind of stuck in the tree, uh, which that's actually a really cool setup by Bond um, and, and basically gets her, her spine snapped in half in the process and kind of gets yanked on a bunch. Uh, and then we have Boris getting getting totally flash frozen by liquid nitrogen. Uh, so we're going to rank the suckitude of how awful <laughs> it would be to die that way. Uh, so, Eric, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, go ahead and give us your um, one through three with one being the worst way to die uh, down to three, which would be, still be a pretty crappy way to die, but not the worst. Can I start with three and like finish like with the pinnacle? The, the go best? ahead. All right. So yeah, work the your best, the worst, I guess. Uh I'm going to say probably Boris getting flash frozen because hear me out. It it probably didn't really hurt. Like, I mean, you're going to feel intense burning like for an instant, but like if it's coming out that fast, you're, you're going to be fully frozen very quickly and very dead very quickly. Um, so not only does he not feel it really, but he doesn't see it coming because I think that stuff comes from behind him. It does, yeah. So, like, that's a big part of it for me, um, which I think the only thing that would boost Boris's death up to the second spot is the fact that that's, like, a really embarrassing, like, lame, sort of, like, weak way to die. It's like, oh, you got frozen to death, you punk, you know, like, you know, you're going to get picked on for the way you die. Uh, that's one of the people that's going to get picked on, like, frozen to death by liquid nitrogen, you're getting your milk money stolen in, in the afterlife. So that would be like one of my problems with it. But uh, I'm going to have to say that Trevelyan dying is the way he died is going to be second place. It definitely beats out Boris because he it's like a double whammy. Like you just maybe even a triple whammy. You got beat by your you know nemesis who you were pretty confident you were going to beat. And so you got beat. You know you did because you got a really nice long chance to think about that while you were also thinking about your impending death because you were falling. Um, That landing would have sucked so bad. Like the pain from that, like your bones turned into powder. That's like as miserable as it gets. And then you're still alive suffering and you, you still see your death coming in the form of flaming mangled metal. Like there's no way you're surviving that. So you know that you know, these are your last seconds. That's terrible. No doubt. But Xenia getting like malfunctioning slingshotted 
like she like a, a, a tree trunk that split and you know branched off and she was pulled by a helicopter and a rope into that and like that's she she had to have felt something and again that's that's a pretty embarrassing way to die i would i would probably never choose to die that way it would be awful um so i i also have boris at three i think he's probably dead before he even really knows it um I think Xenia at number two, I think that would suck for all the reasons you said, but man, uh, just thinking about falling from that height, somehow surviving to just watch that flaming wreckage land on you. Um, I, I've got, so I've got Alec at number one there. So speaking of villains, we're going to move into a reoccurring segment we call villainy index <laughs> and the kinds of movies that we pick here on Rob's reviews in the extended podcast universe are always things that are iconic and have really lasted and, and been important to us. And one of the things that makes these all time great classics and all time great classic, well, there's really a lot of things that go into it, but you need a good villain. You need a quality villain to be the foil for the hero. You, you really you, I struggle to think of a great hero who doesn't also have at least a con, you know, a, a villain that, you know, at least does something, you know, you, you have to, um, you have to at least put up some kind of fight. So on a scale of one to 10, Eric, I'm going to ask you to go first on a scale of one to 10, where Darth Vader is a 10 and uh, Cruella DeVille is a one. Cause she's just mm-hmm. really some dumb rich lady. Who's cruel to animals with no complexity or depth at all. Uh, Alec Trevelyan is, is our main villain here. I want you to go ahead and rate him, uh, one to 10. So there's some sophistication there. I don't, this is one of the things I should have added to my, you know, things that don't work. The, the whole angle of him being, uh, Leon's Cossack, uh, or his family was like, I don't know that that was entirely necessary. I think the, you know, revenge, uh, storyline could have played out the same without that because you know he james left him you know to die in that factory nine years before the you know the real part of the movie starts Uh, so i don't like the the you know the monologuing and the proselytizing is so much um and he does a lot of that but like he does it with without being smarmy and and like I don't know. He doesn't really have a an air of superiority as badly as some others, uh, some other villains. So he's less annoying, but he's still just like James said. He's still just a, a, a common thief. In the end, he's only doing it for money. And the fact that that England is punished uh, in the aftermath is it's just gravy. Um, so I don't really place him very high. Uh, he didn't even have like cool henchmen. He had a, an IT nerd and a really ugly general and a really not ugly sociopath um, who was a pilot. Like that's that's all you got. That's what you brought to the table and a bunch of like pawns. Um, so I'm gonna give him a four. So I've got Trevelyan as a six. Um, <clears throat> very similar to what you said. I think the double cross isn't necessarily obvious at first, which which I think works. Um, you kind of get his motives, but ultimately he really does make a ton of rookie mistakes, particularly being blinded by his desire for revenge. I don't really find him all that threatening. I mean, again, thinking about his desire for revenge, 
you know, so you've got that scene towards the end where James is hanging from the bottom of the, you know, that, that piece of the satellite dish. And they just got done in the little shack above it, like throwing all kinds of stuff at each other. And instead of just picking up that big heavy chain and just dropping it on his face, he decides to like, I don't know, Superman punch his way all the way down trying to get him off of it. Um, so it's just, it's kind of stupid. Um, yeah. And the, it's like never really leaving them in the helicopter after they were yeah. unconscious and leaving the keys in the helicopter. You could have yeah. just brained them while they were unconscious. Like, why not just kill them? I don't understand the, the obsession with the, you know, the slow drop into the, the pit of acid or lava. Like that's what this is. That's what not immediately killing somebody. You don't have to say anything to them. They're going to be dead. It doesn't matter that they hear your voice. Just kill them. Be over with it. These villains. Ah, oh, you know what? You should knock him down. Four is a good number. I was starting to, <laughs> think maybe i should have bumped him up but no he's a loser yeah i, th- I think um speaking of austin powers i think they do a great job you know lampooning that exact sort of situation when uh, uh yes. seth's character uh basically just says oh yeah i've got a gun in my room we'll go kill him right now you know um <laughs> so yeah the, yeah leaving the keys in the helicopter for them to be able to escape was was also kind of a rookie move um, but Bond is, he's never really in danger. And, and that's part of the issue that I think with this, this, the way they present the character in, in the Pierce Brosnan four films, of, you know, he's, I mean, he definitely gets lumped up cause he's kidnapped, uh, and as a prisoner of war later on, but outside of that, you know, um, I think that's one of the things people really liked about the Daniel Craig interpretation is, you know, it's, it's much more grounded. Like the, the stakes seem a little bit higher, you know, bond isn't just superhuman. Um, well, he was, so, uh, my understanding and I, I've never read any of the novels, but like I read something, it was, a, a somewhat early review after Casino Royale came out, the, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale. Um, and they said that this was like, this was the way the bond was originally drawn up and, and, and written. He was not, a tuxedo wearing gentleman who could charm his way in and out of anything. He was a brash bully who was a very much a a blunt instrument instrument more than a precise thing. And he, he's kind of a thug really is, is how uh, Ian Fleming had written him. Right, he's just kind of a bastard, and not in the you know Eddie Izzard uh, sexy bastard, you know, not not, not like that. Um, so that's I think what really does help. It, it's it's more primal, it's more brutal. I, I think it's it's more natural and 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 you know based in reality, like you said, uh, the Daniel Craig ones. It's not as much a fantasy, you know, a spy fantasy. Um, as the other bond movies. Cause I mean, at this point, like where technology is for, for the consumer level, like we all have the same stuff that, you know, bond has. So like, yeah. Remember the one where he was uh, driving his car from the backseat with his phone. Um, you yeah. can do that with a Tesla right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just get out of there before the battery lights on fire. <laughs> yeah. That would be important to do. Um, so uh, we're going to move into another segment that we've done before called Notable and Quotable. And uh, like I mentioned, there's a lot of things that go into all-time iconic movies. And uh, one of the things that's important for, you know, if you if you listening to this right now, think about some of your favorite movies. You can probably quote at least five or six lines minimally from that movie that, uh, that you know by heart and use in um, a variety of circumstances. Um, 
Got to be honest though, Eric, with this one, I don't have much that I would really say falls into, you know, iconic from this film. Uh, but I've got four of them here and I'm going to uh, read these off to you and see if, if they match up with, with what you think. Uh, I think one of the obvious ones has to be, I am invincible. Oh uh, yeah. Um, that was the first one that was in my head. Yeah. Cause I, I've actually used that. Like, you know, if I've tripped and fallen and like recover from it, uh, I'll slip that in. Um, there's a there's a line towards the beginning that uh, Zenya um, you know shoots somebody and or thinks she shoots somebody in the um, ventilation. She says she had to ventilate someone. You know that's kind of funny. Um, I, I really like the bit. Again, I just love everything about Q and when James is visiting Q Branch and, and seeing all the gadgets and stuff like that. And he and he um, you know shows him how the pen works and he said and he and explodes and Q says to him, "Don't say it." And he says, the writing is on the wall. And she responds <laughs> yeah. back along with the rest of him. You know, that's, that's another great one. It's kind of dark. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then towards the end when uh, Trevelyan's about to get dropped and he says, for England, James, you know, recalling back uh, to their, their first mission that we saw them on together at the beginning of the movie. And, and Bond responds, no, for me, and then drops him. Uh, that's pretty cold. That's pretty cold. And, uh, and I enjoy that. So uh, did you have any others that I missed? Um just about everything that Boris says is is yeah. pretty good because he is uh, he's a little bit more cartoonish than than the rest. You know, he's the the least serious person in this entire film. Um, I uh, I did like the interactions that um, Bond has with uh, Webb, the the CIA guy. Um, that's pretty funny because they they play up you know some American cliches with him, uh, that, that are good. Uh, when he, when he takes the hammer to the car, uh, is, is pretty funny. Um, but it, w- the, the, the quotes for him though, that get me is, is when he calls bond, everything, but James, he calls him Jimmy, Jim, Jimbo. And it's, it's funny because it's so crass to, to somebody who's, you know, a, a sophisticated cultured, you know, high society type person. <laughs> to just be winging, you know, uninvited nicknames at them is that is humorous to me. Yeah. And I suppose when you think about some of the lines you remember from this movie, and I probably should have included this in um, least in likes, but God, there's a lot of innuendos and double entendres and things like that, that just, uh, they're not funny the way they once were in the mid nineties. Um, yeah. They, they kind of fall flat for me. Um, and, and some of the sexual puns, um, yeah, they, they kind of creep me out a little bit. And, yeah. And then, there's a little bit of a rapey vibe to bond. Um, uh, yeah, a little, it's a bit uh, much. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would say that's kind of where I, I stopped, um, finding some of those lines super quotable. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and move into, um, you know, another segment that listeners have come to expect from Rob's reviews is uh, Eric's EPU extended playlist. And basically we're, we're in this segment just long enough to say we didn't do one. Um, there's, yeah. you know, Eric will typically grab some great songs and music from the film itself and then pick up on a vibe and, uh, and, and put something together. But honestly, there's just really not one well, this, that works. This whole film this. is scored. So, you know, and, and not to, take anything away from it because a lot of it is very good the 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 it doesn't make a good playlist though the 007 theme song is fantastic and there are an infinite number of uh metal and techno remixes of that that you can find 
so do yourself a favor and, and do explore some of that, but also just like let some of that GoldenEye N64 pause music roll and you'll, you'll be in a, in a good way. Uh, or even just some of the, the music from the, the missions, uh, in the, the single player, um, I, I could sit in the vent of the facility, but before I even kill the guy in the, in the shitter and drop in, like I could sit there and listen to that music for, you know, several minutes and not be bothered at all. Yeah. So find yourself a good, you know, video game, uh, you know, golden eye video game playlist and, uh, pretend like I just made it for you. <laughs> yeah. So we're only going to give you one if we've really got something we think we like and is going to be good. Yeah, so, I, I um, wouldn't have been proud of anything I did. And, and that's, I think, what's probably most important because I would totally sacrifice my productivity at work and my own sleep um, to, to do something and put that together. But for some, for a movie like this, it just wouldn't have worked. And I don't want to force it because forced content is not good content. Yeah, so instead of... Uh having that um just like go re-listen to the one that eric did for uh, from dust till dawn or uh, gone in 60 seconds because those are both total and complete bangers start to finish so uh we're gonna move into some behind the scenes details and uh there's there's actually a lot i mean you can really everybody's probably got a friend or a relative who or a coworker who's like a bond nut um who knows everything there is to know and and there's certainly a lot of information out there um, but I'll just share a couple of things that I found particularly interesting that I hadn't seen in a lot of places, um, you know, prior to, to watching this. But what's interesting, Eric, and you'd kind of mentioned it, um, this is the first Bond film to not have a basis on any of the original Ian Fleming novels. Uh, interestingly, the name Goldeneye, uh, it could have actually come from a couple of places. So uh, Fleming's Jamaican estate was named Goldeneye. Uh, but he could have maybe even named it. Um, I mean, there's actually, there's another novel that's out there. There's Carson McCullers, 1941 uh, novel reflections in a golden eye. Um, You know, he he would have been alive during that period of time because Fleming served in world war II. And he actually had a plan uh, that he had helped create during the second world war called operation golden eye. And it was a series of contingencies if the Nazis invaded Spain. So that's, uh, it's kind of, that's the one that I read about that, that was like most likely the, uh, yep. the, the namesake. Yeah. So the, there's a six year gap, um, in between entries in this franchise and, uh, it's the longest non COVID related span since the series premiered in 1962. And it's all because of litigation. Um, there really is a whole rabbit hole. You can go, go down if you really want to read about the rights of this film and oh, who yeah. use the character. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, it was actually always assumed that Timothy Dalton was going to come back as bond and scripts were written with his portrayal in mind. Well, he had um, a third film in his contract that he was supposed to be held to. Yep. And then as the time kind of expired on it, that's how he made the decision that he was kind of done with the character. Uh, there was some things out there where basically if he was coming back for one, he was going to need to come back for three. And he just said, that's, that's not, um, that's not what I really want to do. A lot of people thought that this was going to bomb by the way. Yeah. They, I read some stuff about how like there wasn't a ton of support, uh, the investment, uh, in it was not really there the way that it used to be because it's like a lot of Hollywood insiders felt like it was time to move on from the, the franchise. It was, it was not going to be profitable anymore. And I mean, with a $60 million budget and, uh, making over tree 50 million in the box office, I'd say that, you know, that was pretty significant. Uh, yeah. They did all right with this by them, you know, the critics. 
So they had some early drafts that they called the property of a lady. Uh, and there was some basis from a Fleming short story. Um, pieces of that actually survived through to the final draft of Goldeneye. Um, we did mention before that this was uh, not a reboot, but there's, you know, there's lots of new actors in here. Um, the only actor to actually continue on with his role from a previous film was the actor who, um, who played Q. Uh, so he had seen him in previous films. Um, and what was really interesting, we had again we had mentioned this earlier, but there's there's such a difference in the world balance of power since the last film. Um, they had several options for this film that were considered that were going to dra- be very drastically different from what we ended up getting. Uh, some of them included setting it in the 1960s so they could keep those Cold War themes. Um, Eric, you mentioned this earlier, but um, this is the first Bond film to use CGI. And overall, to me, it looks pretty good, all things considered. Um, it, it still kind yeah, of holds the, up. The, the green screen stuff was bad. Um, but, you know, w- with a, a smaller budget um, and that also not being the focus of the movie, I think was, you know, I'm totally willing to give it a pass. I don't expect perfection. Okay. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not unrealistic and unreasonable, but. Um, you know, if it's going to suck, I hope it is a minor part of the film and, and not the focal point, because um, that is a problem. But yeah, there was there was uh, there were a couple rewrites with this. Like, you know, one of the scripts originally had uh, China as like the the superpower that was going to be problematic. Um, there was there was other nations uh, involved besides uh, the you know, nations that formerly made up the Soviet Union. Um, and so it was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of changes from the very beginning, uh, which it wasn't, I mean, it was interesting to know, but they really, what I was reading, it really broke down a lot of the story elements that they were going to get into. And it, it's not that interesting. I think that they ended up with a much better story uh, with what was produced versus what was talked about. Yeah. So they actually, they did shoot some in Russia, which was you know, kind of funny to think about um, considering the, you know, the premise of the character prior. Um, but they did need to kind of use London to double as some of the St. Petersburg locations for cost reasons and, uh, and a lot of those, um, you know, factors. But a big portion of the cost was the bodyguards they had to hire the whole time <laughs> they were in Russia that you didn't have to worry about uh, when you were in London. Um, the French Navy was actually, uh, involved in this because, um, they were lending their frigate Lafayette and their Eurocopter tiger for the film. So that's actually the the helicopter that they used. Yeah, it was a real helicopter, real helicopter. Yeah. And they ended up getting into some disputes, uh, and and it all centers around Pierce Brosnan's involvement in Greenpeace. And he's somebody who took real issue with the uh, French nuclear weapons program. Um, this actually resulted in the French premiere uh, of the film getting canceled. Um, so that was he, yeah, he was, he was boycotting it. He wasn't going to go. Yeah, that was, that was like his, uh, you know, his statement uh, to, you know, be supportive of, of Greenpeace's uh, issue with the, the nuclear development uh, that was going on in France. And uh, so he, you know, was going to, in, in his own version of protest, he was going to skip it. And um, they just, instead of getting egg on their face, they just canceled it. It's kind of hard to do a James Bond movie without your James Bond there. So we talked about the bungee jump at the opening scene. Uh, it's performed by stuntman Wayne Michaels. And there was a poll by Sky Movies that listed it um, in 2002 when they did this poll as the best movie stunt of all time. Hard to argue with. Um, it set a it's, record 
for our yeah, highest say, bungee jump. Uh-huh. 722 feet is the highest bungee jump from a fixed structure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, 722 feet. That's that's some pucker yeah. factor. Yes. Um, you, you almost need oxygen <laughs> at that point. Like, uh, unbelievable. Um, they use the Contra Dam in Switzerland um, for that particular scene. So um, I'd be worried about like, because there's, there's a name for it and I'm not as scientific as I once was, but there's uh, a force that moves. It's, you know, it's with updrafts and things, but moves objects either very close to a wall. If you're dropping something from high up or very far away from it, depending on what part of, you know, how the wall is sloped and stuff. So I would be really afraid of just, smacking straight into that wall at any point just because the you know the wind moves a little bit and it just slaps your body up against there that would just be so miserable yeah it would uh, you'd have a bad time that would that um, would climb up to the top spot of uh you know suck factor on on ways to die that's for sure <laughs> yeah so james bond's gear it becomes iconic and coveted and this film does feature several new partnerships uh, replacing the Rolex Submariner used in previous films is the Omega Seamaster. Uh, the BMW Z3 replaces his previous Aston Martin. Um, you know, everybody wants Bond's gear, and it's you know it's really such a big deal. I can actually remember there was uh, one of the recent Daniel Craig films. Uh, I think it was No Time to Die. I read an article that the sunglasses he was wearing in there had already sold out online everywhere shortly after the trailer released and the movie wasn't even out yet and people were already buying the sunglasses <laughs> um you if you type in google um and, and you know like google do predictive searches based on what you start typing um if you if you put in like what you know and then just anything does bond wear um there's just tons and tons of people that are searching for the exact gear that james bond uses be it his suits his watches his car his sunglasses all of it um they estimate that BMW um, spent $3 million for the product placement in this, but it ended up bringing in $240 million in sales as a oh, result. Oh, yeah, they were taking it. orders because it was like months before that even was like the, the Z3 was available. And they were taking like pre-orders immediately after people saw that car. They were gone in 24 hours. Yeah, it was uh, it was like hotcakes. Yeah, um, because of that licensing arrangement, um it actually got finalized very late into production. None of the gadgets they built into the car were able to be used because that car was actually a prototype that had to go back. <laughs> so that's why they put all that stuff in it and never got to use it. Uh, so, what a shame. Um, kind of a bummer because that's some of the fun stuff. So uh, one of my favorite segments to put together is alternate castings where we look at what could have been people who were considered for a role, offered a role, and turned it down or, or even was discussed for it. So um, obviously, you know, who's going to play bond. That's always a big, big topic. You know, it's the, the, the actors that play bond, it's kind of like Batman. You know, everybody has a, a, an idea of who their favorite Batman is and who their favorite bond is, who their least favorite is and who should be it next. So that was certainly something you wanted to get right. Um, Pierce Brosnan at one time was actually an option for Bond to replace Roger Moore instead of Timothy Dalton, but he had contractual obligations to the TV show Remington Steel that prevented him from taking it. But he eventually you know, circled around and he was able to do it. So, uh, but before they landed on Brosnan for this uh, version of the character, 
there's a couple other ones that they had considered, and I want to see what you think about these, Eric. Uh, Mel Gibson, Hugh no. Grant, Liam Neeson all turned it down. Which of those three would you have liked to have seen? Liam Neeson. Yeah. No hesitation. Yeah, 100% there. Mel uh, Gibson Ralph- can't be British, first of all. He just is not going to be able to do that. Um, and Hugh Grant can't be tough. <laughs> he can be British, but he cannot be tough. So yeah. he's out. Like he's out so far out. Like I would, I would be offended if he played Bond. And not to say that he can't act. Okay, it's not about that. It's just he can't be Bond. That can't happen. Yeah. Uh, Ralph Fiennes and Paul McGann were also discussed as the next Bond. I had even found some rumors that uh, Sam Neill of Jurassic Park fame was uh, was being considered at one time. And For an actor Goldeneye? by the name, uh, yeah, he was con- he was really? at one time being considered as Bond for Golden. Oh, he could have totally done it. I would have believed it. Yeah. Um, and an actor by the name of Lambert Wilson, which if that name doesn't sound familiar to you immediately, he was the Merovingian from the Matrix sequels. Ooh, yeah, oh, that yeah. would have worked. I still so, want to see Idris Elba, but he he might be getting a little bit old to play the role now. Yeah. So before Trevelyan was Alec, he was actually written as Augustus. Um, the character was originally going to be much older, and he kind of would have been a little bit different of a role. It would have been more of a f- mentor, teacher yeah. figure to Bond. Um, early discussions for this role centered around Anthony Hopkins and Alan Rickman. Those would have been uh-huh. pretty good options. Yeah. Um, Sean Bean, interestingly enough, had actually previously auditioned for the role of 007 for 1987's the living daylights that ultimately went to Timothy Dalton, but Sean Bean could have probably been bond. That would have been cool to see him in a movie that he doesn't die in. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Bond girls, Elizabeth Hurley and Elle McPherson were considered for roles as bond girls at one time. Interestingly enough, Liz Hurley was kind of able to be one in her own way in the Austin power series. Powers girl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, pretty much satires everything about 007. Um, so those are the uh, alternate castings that I had. So I kind of want to do something a little bit different here. We're going to move into what I call future castings. So we know that Daniel Craig is leaving the role behind. So I want to throw some uh, some options at you, Eric. And I want you to just give me, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, your immediate knee-jerk, don't even think about it for two seconds, reaction to any of these names. So I'm going to start with a couple that have already been kind of out there that people are talking about. You mentioned one, Idris Elba. Yeah, that's a 10 for me. I I, I would love to see that. That'd be fantastic. Uh, another one that's been mentioned a lot, Tom Hiddleston. Uh, six. Henry Cavill. Two. I think he's too jacked for it. It's just not... Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's his face for me. It's a little bit square. Yeah. So those are some of the ones that are kind of out there. But I, I if you listen to some of the chatter, there's a possibility they're going to go maybe a little non-traditional. Um, certainly casting a black bond would be non-traditional. And Idris Elba would be female. fantastic. So I'm going to throw another one at you. You ready okay. for this? Yep. Scale of 1 to 10. Margot Robbie. Um, <laughs> that one's going to go up to 11. <laughs> I think she could do it. I, I honestly think she could do it. Um, Regina King, who literally just crushed Watchmen when, when, uh, when it came oh, out two years ago. She can do anything, like yeah. literally anything. Um, huh. She can do voice work. She can write. She can direct. She can act. So, yeah, this, that's a 10. I 100% would do that. I, I think maybe of everything on my list, this one, this next one might be my favorite. Haley Atwell. 
what's your reason? What's your number for that? Oh, no, that's a 10. Um, okay. I think it just what we saw from her and the Captain America series, um, she could do it. She's uh, she's believable in the action scenes. Um, she's smart. She's witty. I think she's got the ability. I think she could do it. I would watch a 007 series starring Haley Atwell. That's the uh, 100%. And, I, and, you know, I hate to to even approach anything sounding demeaning or, or sexist, but it's not how it's not how I think. It's how media is consumed. It's how people are critical. And I think for females who are taking on an action role, the hardest part for them to win over every audience is the the believability of of their physical uh, performance. So like you got to have the physical chops to be able to do it to satisfy a lot of people's uh, perceptions and, and to, to get approval. So that I think is probably a huge part of it. So, I mean, that's why you see uh, Ronda Rousey, uh, you know, in, in action movies, cause she can fight, you know, like she's, yeah. she's trained. Um, and Gina Carano, you know, I'm sure at some point we'll get back, you know, on the screen and um, you know, there, again, there's a reason behind it is cause they're physically capable um so that's something that you don't always see but a lot of them were like just taking a pretty face and forcing them up there and you know we'll we'll make it work we'll we'll you know use some camera tricks and stunt doubles and things like that um but uh, you know audiences discerning audiences want more they want realism they want they want to see the the pretty face doing the crane kick you know, like I want to see your foot connect with that guy's jaw while I'm also looking at your actual face and not the back of a, a stunt woman's head. So he's in the news now. He just retired. Tom Brady. You, are you this isn't serious. <laughs> Listen, if he could be Bond, he would stay retired and he wouldn't have to play football and we wouldn't have to I see him care. again. He just, as long, he, the, you know, the Niners are going to be calling him like now. Now he's, I, he's, he's uh, done. He's done. As long as he stays in the NFC, this is a different podcast though. Uh, no, absolutely not. No. What's your, what's your it. score? Zero. He's, he's nobody. <laughs> all these, all these, I would rather see. Actors. Yeah. But like not all of them can do it. Peyton think Manning. Of how, think how many he movies he's it. already been in. Well, they just, I'm telling made, you he's got the bug. They just made a new one and it makes me sick. Because the the elderly ladies who are all in it are all very very good, and that eighty for Brady or whatever, I'm just I'm so disappointed. Yeah, um, Pedro Pascal. Because why not? Let's just have him do everything at this point. Um, yeah, I'm all, listen. If Pedro Pascal said he was going to be starring in the new My Little Ponies movie, I'd be on it. So, yeah, that man this can is the do way. no wrong. This um, is the way. I've got an, I've got my last one, Peter Dinklage. But only, only mm. if they never mention anything about his size. His size <laughs> does not factor in any way at all. They play it straight. <laughs> How awesome would he be, though? That would be actually pretty fantastic. Like if everything he could was do it accessible. I mean, acting wise, absolutely. I just but the problem know. is like it's it just for somebody like him to do action scenes. Hand to hand combat is a is a problem for my well but the problem is to make it yeah they would have to get really creative about it and my fear is that things like that always uh, you know they kind of 
they they come across turn into comedy. Yeah, it, uh, it, it yeah. can never be played seriously. It well, always ends it's up only going being to turned be into comedy. possible through Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon style. Yeah. And I would like to see him in more things, though. Absolutely. Yeah, and and you kind of saw this with him in um, uh, Days of Future Past, where he was playing a character where the fact that he was, you know the physical size that he is had no bearing on his character literally meant nothing. It's never discussed. It has, it's not an important part of his character. Um, so I, I kind of like that and I wish we'd see more of that too. Um, so we're going to go ahead and move into our, our rating system here in the EPU. We call it rewatchability rating and Pantheon points. So on the big show, we rank things out of uh, five buckets of popcorn. But when we're talking about movies that are all time classics, um, you know, of course, these are these are almost all going to be fives for us. So we have to come up with a little bit different way to rank some of these movies that are that are on your all time classic. So we, we've got the rewatchability rating, which I'll run it over for uh, new listeners or people who haven't heard one of the shows in a while. So a five is I would watch it start to finish every time locked in Four, I put it on and play with my phone in between scenes. I love three. This is background noise while I'm doing housework. Two, it's a film I enjoy, but I don't go out. Of, I don't think I'll go out of my way to watch it again. And a one means it doesn't hold up the way I remember. So, Eric, go ahead and uh, start us off. What is your rewatchability rating for Goldeneye? So, just like everything else, this is a living rating because I can't ever stick to anything. Um, I mean, I just said like uh, the, you know five years ago I watched this and it would have been you know much closer to one, um, just because I thought it didn't really hold up like to me it was like surf ninjas like wow this movie was awesome when i was eight and now that i'm 16 this movie is really stupid so it's like that but watching it again this time i think it had to have been a mood thing i don't know but at this point i'm very confidently gonna say it's a four for me um because it's not gonna be a locked in start to finish at all like i'm yeah. certainly gonna you know take a leak and you know not avail myself of the pause button um, you know, just let it ride and go get a refill on the beverage, let the dogs out. You know, there's certain things that I'm, I'm going to accomplish while it's on because I'm not going to be missing anything. Yeah. I think that's probably a great way to think about movies that you've seen before TV shows you've seen before. If you get up to leave the room, do you pause it or do you just let it roll while you're gone because thinking about something like Goodfellas, oh no, I'm pausing it. Like, don't you dare oh, yeah. well, leave the movie on if I'm leaving the room. I, I need to see well, every single second of this. Like rapid fire, and you will miss something that's that's good if you're yeah. out of the room for more than a few seconds. You know, like you 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 should know that too. And and so it you know it is like if you know that something's coming up that you don't want to miss, then yeah, you hit pause. But like if you know that something's coming up that you don't care about missing, then it's time to go take a leak, and you're just gonna let it play. So I'm kind of similar to you. I'm in the neighborhood. This is a three and a half for me. Um, there are parts of it, again, I, like I mentioned, it's been a while since I've seen this. And there are parts of this that don't hold up as well. But it then looks parts really this, old, right? Yeah. Like, doesn't it look like it's just ancient? <laughs> it, it depends on what you watched prior to this. Keep in mind, I just got done watching Wild Wild West. So, yeah. Although, I mean, That's actually got much the last thing. Visuals. I, <laughs> the last thing I watched was the uh, third episode of the last of us on Sunday, which holy cow. 
Um, make sure to subscribe to Matt Goes to the Movies, by the way, so you can stay on top of all of our uh, weekly reviews of that show. And you really should be watching that show, too, because that's incredible. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough to yeah, anybody who's to listened to this sure. and, uh, and hasn't started it yet. But yeah, so this is a three and a half for me. Um, there's so many things about just that classic Bond feel that are here um, that are that are fun, that you can enjoy. Um, but then there's some things, like I said, they just don't hold up in some ways. So we're going to move into um, Pantheon points where it's just, it's, it's just pure fun. Um, how do you kind of regard this movie? What, what halls of fame would you place this in? You know, if you had to, you can come up with any ranking system that you want, uh, any way that you want to rank this or rate this movie. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and go first. I'm going to say that, this is this is my favorite Pierce Brosnan movie. This is my favorite movie he's in. And I was thinking that I could confidently say mm. it was top two. But I, as much as I like Mrs. Doubtfire, I still like GoldenEye better, and particularly for the amount of time Pierce Brosnan is in Mrs. Doubtfire. He's not in it long enough for me to really consider that that's like a movie he's in. Are so you completely my... leaving out the Thomas Crown Affair like a complete buffoon? I still like GoldenEye better. Well, it's... Yeah, but like, I, Pierce Brosnan was a main character in this, not Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, that, that's that's probably my second favorite. Then, um, I would say this is a top five Bond movie for me because I still haven't seen the most Ooh, recent one. Yeah, so it's going to be top five Bond movie for me. I think I can confidently say it's top five in my spy action thriller genre. Um, man, that that Bourne series is so good <laughs> until it's not. So I, I think the, the first three Bourne films are definitely in the, in the top five for sure. The fourth one doesn't get the love it should because um, it you know kind of replaces the character. And the fifth one's nowhere near as good. Um, so this one fits in with those pretty easily. Um, and I definitely like it better than the first Mission Impossible film. So for me, this is top five spy thriller. Really? Yeah, I like oh, it. Oh, wow. That, that first Mission Impossible doesn't hold up the way you remember it. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I guess the only way to find out is to rewatch it. Yeah. Um, and I think that I can confidently say it's this, the golden eyes probably in my top 50 of just favorite movies. It's probably in my top 50. Right. Um, I'm pretty confident on that. So uh, Eric, what pantheons do you place golden eye in? I, I think I'm going to go with you in the top 50 because there are certainly many, many films that are better in terms of just filmmaking. Okay. It's not very well acted. <laughs> you know, there's obvious stunt doubles everywhere, but some of the stunts are really awesome. Um, there's some some slick, uh, you know, things that they do that you you maybe don't pick up on the first time you watch it. So, uh, but it's just not one of the greatest ever. So, I'll say top fifty all movies. Um, it's my second favorite Bond movie. Um, I put casino royale above it um i've only seen quantum of solace like twice so i can't like really really skyfall is the one of the daniel craig series people really seem to like and that's good and i i think i might have seen skyfall once and this is you know just my failure to keep current on new movies um so it's it's going to be my second favorite bond movie until i see the rest um it is my favorite movie that also had a game of the year made after it. Mm. And. Oh, 
so Boris's death is in my top three frozen deaths. Ooh, um, what are the other two? When DiCaprio bites it in Titanic and <laughs> in listen, Demolition Man, Wesley Snipes' character gets frozen just like Boris, but he gets his head kicked off. It's so sweet. Yeah, that's, so, a, that's a better nitro. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's uh, Boris's top three frozen deaths. Um, and then I rank myself in the top 50% of uh, you and me in who can throw down in basement proxy mines. I'm in the top um, 50% of the two of us. Wow. That's, I guess we'll agree to disagree on that one. Um, so, so that's going to do it for us on GoldenEye. Um, want to throw out a couple quick plugs. Uh, please make sure that you subscribe to the show. There is so much great stuff coming for the month of February. Um, looking forward to getting the calendar of events finalized for this month. But uh, you can definitely count on uh, every week, we're going to be doing uh, recaps of The Last of Us. The plan is to have it Sunday night. That way you've got it for a Monday morning on your way to school or work. Um, might be an episode or two that comes out you know, a day or so late, but make sure you stay subscribed to the channel for all of that. Um, but yeah, Matt and I had a great meeting uh, the other day going over some ideas and some things that we'd like to do. So there should be lots of fun coming. Uh, please make sure that you also uh, follow the show on all of the social media platforms where you can find us. Um, there's going to be some user polls and things like that, that uh, you can contribute to the programming here at Matt Goes to the Movies. There's going to be some polls that you can kind of say which ones of a list of things you'd like to see. So you can find us on Facebook. Uh, there is a Facebook group that you should definitely join and be a part of. Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, um, and uh, Twitter as well. Uh, no Pinterest yet. Uh, Matt's still working on what that would look like. Um, but yeah, you can find the show everywhere. You can also email the show mgttmpodcast at gmail.com uh, for any thoughts or uh, anything you'd like to send. So uh, that's going to do it. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you soon at Matt Goes to the Movies. <laughs>